Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and his church, grow in faith and understanding of God's word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles and open to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Happy Mother's Day, moms. We're so thankful for you. We're, we're so happy for you. We pray this is a day of peace and rest. Uh, I had the fun opportunity this morning of walking around and talking to families and asking dads what they're doing for their wives and started some interesting discussion in some households. But listen, here's the bottom line, dad. Today ought to be about her. Give her whatever she wants. Let's just be clear, okay? Doesn't have to be complicated. Doesn't have to be super fancy. She wants a nice lunch. Take her lunch. If she probably, I'm I'm going to tell you dads, I'm going to clue you in a little bit of knowledge and wisdom here. She probably just wants peace and quiet. I mean, if you give her the afternoon to rest or to watch TV or read or sleep or whatever she wants, she's probably going to be happy. So moms, we hope you have a great day. Hope you relax. Uh, It's a very thankless job. Uh, Maybe the highest calling, but maybe the most difficult calling. So we pray you have a great day. We celebrate you. We love you. Happy Mother's Day. Now we're continuing our study this morning in the book of Philippians. We've been walking through verse by verse, being challenged to live for Christ. That's what Paul talks about. That's the foundation of what he says in this book. And I've challenged you to read through it during the week. I got a lot of feedback from that. Some of you are reading through once a week. Some of you are reading once a day, and that's great too. There's a lot in here. I encourage you to be in God's word as much as possible. It never returns void. You're never going to read scripture and then regret reading it. You're always going to be encouraged and be challenged. And I believe the Lord will always speak to you through his word. And so I'll encourage you to continue to do that. I want to kind of review for a second from last week and kind of make a connection into our next chapter. So let's take a look at Philippians 1, 27. We talked a lot about this last week. We have it on the screen as well. But I want you to understand for Paul, this is foundational. I love preaching through Paul because Paul is logical in his thoughts. Paul typically will give us kind of a theological idea, and then he'll help us understand how to flesh that out. So how do you take this theology, how do you take this doctrine, and then live it out in your life? And he does that throughout the book of Philippians. So verse 27 is the practical application of Christ being foundational in your life. If Christ is the foundation, if Christ is number one, if he's primary for you, you should live it out by doing specific things. One of the things is found in verse 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, For the faith of the gospel, right? The foundation for Paul is Christ. He's going to build everything on Christ. He's going to think about Christ. He's going to talk about Christ. He's going to preach Christ. He encourages us to do the same. Now, a little bit of biblical understanding here. When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, he didn't divide it up by verses and chapters. He just wrote a letter. In fact, if you look at the original Greek, and you could Google it if you want to, it's just a lot of Greek letters strung together without even division between words, without any punctuation. 
So it's very interesting to look at if you've never read Greek or understand it. But when Paul wrote it, there was no chapter 1, chapter 2. That came hundreds of years later with the interpretations, right? So the interpreters broke it up into groups because they thought it'd be easier for us to reference it instead of saying, hey, look at the 500th word of the letter to the Philippi. You should say instead, look at chapter 1, verse 10 or whatever. So we've got them broken up for our benefit. But the point is, when Paul wrote it, he didn't break them up. So what happened? happens in chapter 2 is a direct continuation of what happened in chapter 1. So when Paul writes in 127 about a life worthy of the gospel, as he fleshes that out for us in chapter 2, it's a direct connection. So as we build in chapter 2, we're building on this idea that Christ is foundational. We're to build our life upon him. And when we do that, we should live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay? So let's take a look now at chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, some translations say, therefore, the ESV so says, so if there is any, right? So therefore, because of who Christ is, because he's foundational, because we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul last week talked a lot about unity. Unity with Christ, unity within the body. He's going to continue to think through that and really flesh that out for us this morning. So here's the first truth I want you to see with the idea that we are unified with Christ. Truth one, unity with Christ brings encouragement, comfort, love, joy. Unity with Christ brings encouragement, comfort, love, and joy. Now, Paul says throughout this letter that Christ is his foundation, right? Paul says this, we need to build on Christ, we need to live for Christ, and Paul shows us in verses 1 and 2 especially that Christ is our source for some specific things. So look in verse 1 again, Christ is our source for encouragement. He's our source for comfort. He's our source for affection. He's our source for sympathy. Verse 2, he's our source for joy. Now here's the problem with this. I want you to track with me just for a second here. The problem is for a lot of people, these things, comfort and joy and affirmation and encouragement and sympathy, for a lot of people, those things don't come naturally. Now, when you take that and you compound it with the idea that this last year has been incredibly difficult, we would say that a lot of people struggle with this idea. A lot of people struggle with finding comfort, with finding peace, with finding joy. The problem for far too many people is that we've looked for all those things and we've tried to find all those things in the things of the world. So far too many people try to find comfort in the things of the world. Far too many people try to find joy in the things of the world. Far too many people try to find encouragement in the things of the world. So maybe for you, that encouragement or that joy or that peace comes from a job that you have. Maybe for somebody else it comes from their bank account. Maybe for somebody else it comes from a person. Maybe for somebody else it comes from a sin, right? You look for comfort in a sin, I'll never forget uh, back last year, kind of in the, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, when things were, I mean, they're weird now, when they were really weird and 
we were confused and didn't really know a whole lot. And grocery stores had just started opening back up, but there was a shortage. And you had to stand in line, you know, certain distance and temperature. And we remember those days. I'll never forget. I'll never forget as long as I live walking into Publix and walking all the way to the back of the store to the meat area and there being no meat. And I don't mean they didn't have the cut of of steak that I wanted. I mean they didn't have any meat. And as Amy and I stood there just for a moment, I'll never forget this guy rolled this cart out. It's about six feet tall, four sides, full of meat. Man, a meat cart rolling out in Publix is pretty cool, by the way. That was a pretty neat thing to see. Now, it was so surreal to me because it wasn't like there was a mad dash. Nobody was pushing. It didn't get out of control. But there was this weird moment where we all knew this is all the meat there is. And if we want some of it, we got to get it. So people just kind of orderly and under control. We kind of stood in line. We waited our turn and got meat. But I was just reminded in that moment how I take a lot of comfort in knowing I can just roll up to the grocery store and get food for my family, no problem. There's a lot of comfort in that. I don't have to worry about whether food's available, right? We don't worry about that. We've got jobs, so we've got money in the bank or in our pocket. We go buy what we need, feed our families. We don't don't typically worry about that kind of stuff. But when it's taken away from us and we realize it might not always be there for us, it's a great reminder that maybe we're finding comfort and encouragement and hope in the things of the world. Now, the problem is when you're finding your peace and hope and comfort in the things of the world, when those things are taken away from you, you've got nothing else to stand on. And we've all experienced some level of that over the last year. I'm certain of it. And Paul says, listen, we just need to be mindful of this. We need to be mindful of the fact that our comfort and peace and joy should come from the things of the Lord, not the things of the world. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's easy for Paul. This is Paul. I mean, other than Jesus, he may be the most well-known person in the world. I mean, people know the apostle Paul is easy for him because he was Paul, right? He wrote most of the New Testament, very well-known guy. But if you know anything about Paul, you know that Paul struggled. Life was not easy for Paul. In fact, he had been shipwrecked, he'd been beaten, now he's in prison, right? He talked about that really through the whole first chapter. And then he comes to this place, we've read it and studied and we'll continue to read back through it in Philippians 1, 21, where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? Paul is already literally contemplating his own death. This comes on the heels of a life lived in great struggle. And yet in the middle of this life, in the middle of the difficulties, in the middle of all that that Paul has been through, his hope rests not in the things of the world, but instead in the things of Christ. Paul doesn't find his comfort in the things of the world. Paul's not encouraged by the things of the world. Paul doesn't find joy in the things of the world. Instead, he finds them in Christ. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And so the question for us is, where are we finding our comfort? 
Where are we finding our encouragement? Where are we finding our love? Where are we finding our joy? If we're finding those things in the things of the world, if we're seeking those things in the things of the world, we will be disappointed. Because Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all things. And Paul says, listen, we need to understand that our foundation is built on Christ, not the things of the world. And we live for Christ and have unity with him. We find our peace and comfort and joy through him. Now let's continue. Look at verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2. Right. So because, listen, because we have a foundation in Jesus, because we've decided to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, because we found hope in Christ, and encouragement and peace in him. Look at verse 3. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's truth number two. Unity with Christ brings humility. Not only brings peace and comfort and love and joy, it also brings humility. And Paul says, listen, we need to be humble, not conceited, not selfish. Now, humility is a difficult thing, isn't it? Humility is a difficult thing. And if you have to tell somebody you're really humble, chances are you're not, right? And so we think about humility and we wonder what humility looks like. And the problem is when we look around the world and we see what the world thinks, we realize this is kind of opposite of what the world teaches us. In fact, the world says something like this. Listen, assert yourself. Look out for number one. Put yourself first in everything. See yourself as most important, right? Here's the problem with that mindset. It typically doesn't work. I read an article this week in Psychology Today. I was just curious their take on humility. I was curious what they would say about humility, how they would kind of offer the idea of being humble. And here's what psychology today said. We need humility now more than ever. Recent trends in America suggest that by several different metrics, narcissism, which is basically just a love for self, may be on the rise. Self-aggrandizing and entitlement have poisoned relationships and wreaked havoc in workplaces, sown increasing division in politics, and fueled the culture war. We've seen the toll of arrogance in families, neighborhoods, workplaces, and society. It's interesting that even a secular organization like Psychology Today recognizes that what the Bible says is actually true. And I love it, by the way, when secular people come to the conclusions that the Scripture's been teaching for 2,000 years. Isn't that kind of cool when that happens? It's often been said that, that, that psychologists uh, and philosophers, as they climb, this is, this is an interesting kind of an idea, you have to think through a little bit, as they climb the mountain of truth, when they arrive at the top, they'll realize the theologians have been there for centuries. And I think that's true. Now, they're looking for truth. Here it is. We've known it for a long time. Psychology Today is recognizing that humility is important. The Bible's been saying it for thousands of years. Here's what Isaiah 66, 2 says. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 149, 4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. 
Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life, right? Paul didn't think about himself. He didn't think about his imprisonment. He thought instead how that could be used for the sake of the gospel. Christ didn't think about his own life, didn't think about his own pleasure. Instead, he thought about how he could give and sacrifice for the sake of others, right? We see throughout Scripture this idea, this mindset of humility. As believers, we need to have humility in our lives, right? Now, here's what some of you are thinking. I get it. I agree with it. It's important. I don't quite know how to do it. So how do I live, as Christ teaches, in humility? I'm going to give you a few things on the screen. We can kind of walk through some biblical ideas about how to increase humility, really about how to think of others greater than yourself. Here's the first one. Acknowledge your sin. All right, Romans 3.23 basically says everybody's sinned, all of us, me and you. And the more we acknowledge our sin and the more we realize that we are a sinful person, and the more we realize that we serve a holy God, it puts us into the right perspective, understanding his holiness and his glory, understanding our sinfulness, understanding that he is God and we are not. That begins to move you to a place of humility. The more you contemplate that, The more you think about that, the more you begin to see yourself as humble, especially compared to the holy God. That leads you to this place of seeking forgiveness and acknowledging your need for Christ. Right? The Bible's real clear. Our sin has separated us from the Lord. And no amount of work or good deeds or happiness or or giving money or whatever will fill that gap. There's nothing we can do to cross that gap. The only way to get back into a right relationship with the Lord that, by the way, we have severed is through Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, the blood of Christ covers our sins And through him, we're given forgiveness, right? And so as we start seeking forgiveness and acknowledging our need for Christ and understanding salvation, that puts us more and more to this place of humility. Because without Jesus, you understand, we would be nothing. Without Christ, there'd be no hope for us. And so it moves us more and more to a place of humility. The next thing is remember the cross. I love John Stott, and I read a lot of what he writes, and I, I like to quote him pretty often because he's so good, and he always just kind of hits me between the eyes and the things he says. Here's what John Stott says about the cross. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing, your curse that I'm suffering Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So well said. Look at the cross, remember Christ, remember all he's done. How about this next one? Serve someone else, especially somebody in need. This could be a coworker, a friend, a family member. There's no restrictions on what you can or cannot do. Help them, love them, 
give to them, sacrifice them, begin to think about their needs over your needs, and then last but certainly not least, thank God for your blessings. I tell this story a lot because it's, it's very personal to me and very important to me, but every time I go on mission trips, especially when we go to difficult areas, and one of the things that, that I'm proud our church does is when we do mission work, we go to the hard places. Right? There are easier places you can go and do mission work. We're not going to the easy places. We're going to go to the hard places. Why? Because those people desperately need Christ. And so we go to the hard places, and we see the difficult situations, and we oftentimes work in abject poverty. Right? I told somebody this week, and it's the truth, uh, every time I go through Starbucks, it costs me more at Starbucks than what a lot of the world makes in a day. Let me say that again. What I buy at Starbucks is more money than a large portion of the world makes in a day. You go spend $10 at Starbucks, there's over a billion people in the world that don't make $10 a day. And so we work in these hard places, and I'm always uh, intrigued to get to know these people and understand them a little bit and, and hear their stories. And we have this false, by the way, mindset of sometimes people in these other countries maybe aren't as smart or as hardworking or don't want to advance like we do. And what I find when I work with these people, number one, they work a lot harder than I do. And, and I work pretty hard, but not compared to those people. They're incredibly intelligent. Their resourcefulness their ability to do things with less is amazing to me. We go build houses in Guatemala, and I'm telling you, the way they build houses is not the way we build houses. And we think we've got it figured out until you say, hey, I want you to walk into the jungle. All I'm going to give you is a machete. I need you to build a house for me. Good luck, right? They figure out how to do it. They're very resourceful. They love their family. They desire to do good things for their family just like we do. So I come back with this idea. Listen, it's not because I work harder. It's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I've got a, a better goal in life than they do. I really boil it down to this simple truth. For whatever reason, God chose to allow me to be born here and them to be born there. And I promise you, if we switched places at birth, he would be what I am now and I would be what he is. And I think about that a lot. And it boils down to the grace of God. God gave grace to me for whatever reason and put me here. And that means to whom much is given, much is expected, right? The blessings that we have, the opportunities that we have, all the things God has given me. He didn't give them to me simply so I could just lay around and be fat and happy, right? He gave them to me so that I can use them to honor him, to further his kingdom, and as we begin to think about that and we thank God for our blessings, it brings us to this point of humility. Lord, why did you choose to put me here? That's a humbling thing. Why did you choose for me to be born here than in a slum in northern India? Why, Lord? Why did you choose to let me be born here instead of the, Gua the Guatemalan jungle, somewhere in the middle of Central America, Lord? Why did you choose to let me be, be, be born here than somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa with no running water, no electricity, no medical clinic for 50 miles? Why? It's the grace of God. What are you doing with that? Right? And the more we begin to understand that and thank God for our blessings, the more humble we become, the more we begin to see others greater than ourselves, right? So there's this beautiful picture in Christ of finding our contentment in him, finding our peace and hope from him, being humble through him because of what he's given us and what it requires of us. And then we need to finish up, look at verse 5 here. Now, just a side note on Philippians 2, 5, I'm going to give you the first portion of that 
book, I mean the for, first portion of that verse, because the second half and then verse 6 follows is this great source of, of doctrine and theology. There's so much that's been written about verses 5b on through 6 and following down through 11. I'm going to spend the whole sermon next week talking about that. But this week we're going to end with the first half of verse 5, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's truth number three. Unity with Christ brings a change in mindset. Unity with Christ brings a change in mindset. Followers of Jesus should think differently than the world. So just a clue, this is one of those kind of self-assessment kind of deals. When you're at work, if you look and act and think and talk like everybody else, you may be missing this. Because the calling for you in life is not necessarily to blend in. Sometimes it's to stand out. And Christ calls us to have a different mindset. A different mindset leads us to different action and to different thoughts, to different reactions. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by their reaction. We can kind of fake actions, but their reaction, man, in moments of strife or dispute or stress is telling oftentimes of a person, right? Do we have a, a mindset different than the world? Now, Paul tells us, and the scriptures tells us, that we should have a mind of Christ, right? Your mind should be that which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what verse 5 says. Do we have the mind of Christ? You say, what, what is the mind of Christ Look like So for the next probably four or five minutes, I'm going to end up with this. I'm going to give you some biblical understanding. I'm going to give you some main ideas and then a few verses that help you understand what the mind of Christ looks like. Okay, so pull that final screen up if you would. Stay with me. We're almost done here. Mind of Christ. What should a mind of Christ look like? The first, when we have the mind of Christ, our minds should be alive. Now here's where I get this. Romans 8, 6 says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, right? Your mind should be active and seeking and listening and alive to the things of Christ, not the things of the world. A lot of people's minds are alive to the things of the world. We're constantly thinking, pondering, wondering about the things of the world. How alive is our mind to the things of Christ, How much are we actively thinking and praying and contemplating the things of Jesus? That goes right into the second one. Our minds should be focused on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How devoted are we to the things of Christ? How devoted are our minds to thinking about the things of Jesus? Number three, our minds should be pure. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. I read a book years ago called The Mind of Christ by T.W. Hunt. And in this book, he talks about what it's like to have the mind of Christ. In fact, several of these bullet points come directly from this book. But I want you to listen to this quote. I want you to contemplate what he's saying here in his book. He said, suppose Christ broke through the veil that separates the spiritual from the physical and audibly said to you today, 
I am going to require you to have my mind in all its fullness. However, I want people to know what a miracle of change I can work. So I'm going to reveal to your church what your mind is like right now. Next Sunday, in your church, I'm going to take over the morning service and play back for all to hear every thought you had last week. Would it appall you or delight you if Christ revealed your thoughts? Now, we all know the answer to that question, don't we? But it's challenging for us to consider how pure are our thoughts, how pure are our minds. And then finally, we should be responsive to the gospel. Luke 24, 45, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. The Bible says he opened their minds to understand the scripture. How responsive are you to the scripture? Like when you go home today and you've been presented with truth, you've been challenged with truth, what are you now gonna do in your life to change, to be molded more and more into the image of Christ, right? How responsive are you gonna be to the gospel? Are you gonna take it and set it aside and for a week ignore it and not make any changes or are you going to allow the gospel literally to break your heart again and to change you more into the image of Christ? If we're going to have the mind of Jesus, we need to be responsive to who he is and especially in our lives to what he says, right? Unity with Christ is a glorious thing, right? Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's the idea instead of serving in unity with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's got great plans for us. He's got great hopes for you. Trust Jesus, the true and living God, who is worthy of our praise.